0: What's going on everybody? You got Evan Knowles and Logan Jones here at the Middle Tech Podcast. Awesome episode. I really enjoyed this one. Uh, this one was with a guest that's actually from
1: nowhere near around here. He's from Canada and he's actually currently over in Silicon Valley. Yeah, all the way across uh, in the Pacific time zone. So we were recording a little late here out of Awesome Inc. Studio. Um, but that was a really cool conversation just because I felt like it almost tied Lexington to not only the entire country, but you know, Alex talks about markets all across the entire globe. So yeah. it kind of put Lexington in the middle of this conversation where we got to discuss, um, markets and startup, startup ecosystems from, uh, in his book, he says, Delhi to Detroit. And we put Lexington right in there in the mix of that. Uh, and it was really uh, interesting conversation where we talked about the differences in mindset, uh, between Silicon Valley startups and those as, as Alex calls the frontier, we talk about how, you know, there's a unicorn mindset, out in the valley of growth at all costs and then there's more of a camel mindset of resiliency and you know making sure that we're building companies that can that can survive uh, the not so good times as well yeah we'll we'll plug his book real quick here at the
0: beginning uh, so the name of his book is uh, Out Innovate: How Global Entrepreneurs from Delhi to Detroit are rewriting the rules of Silicon Valley um, so it's all about you know how innovation is happening everywhere um, and that innovation is different depending on where you are. Um, and there's different practices. There's different business practices, depending on where you are as well. It's not just about innovation. It's also about you know, how companies innovate and how, what kind of practices they put in place to grow the company. Um, all that stuff is different from region to region in the world. Um, and so this is a great conversation because what we do with Middle Tech is try to begin to get more of that conversation out into the world and get people in this region more used to talking about innovation and risk and entrepreneurship and things like that. And so it's really cool to sit down with Alex and talk about that almost on a global scale from his perspective as a venture capitalist and somebody that travels the world investing in the, some of the biggest companies uh, and some of the most innovative companies in just regions that you know, some of us just never even been around. you know, New Delhi or South Korea or China uh, or, or Paris or, or wherever. Um, he's traveling around the world investing in these amazing companies and working with entrepreneurs everywhere. Um, so it's just a super cool conversation. Uh, we encourage you to go look up the book um, and see what it's all about and give it a read. Uh, one other thing we want to mention uh, before we get into the podcast is five across. Yeah. So we, uh, so we got to do,
1: we got to do a little five across plug here. Uh, you know, awesome Inc is so, so gracious and awesome to us by letting us use this studio uh, to, to you know do middle tech in general. This would, what we're doing, at least at the quality that we're doing, it would not be possible with awesome Inc. And we know you guys are definitely appreciative of the nicer sound quality as compared to what it used to be with the <laughs> snowball bike in the middle of the table. So big shout out to awesome Inc just in general for allowing us to do what we do, Um, and make it making this whole thing possible so we just want to plug they've got five across coming up here um october 28th and they've given us our own custom code for five across so if you use the code middle tech pod you can get that ticket completely for free 100 percent off Uh, that's some some stuff to be looking forward to that's coming up um all right well let's get into this conversation then
0: Welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. You've got Evan Knowles and Logan Jones here. Uh, we are out of awesome ink this evening. And we're sitting down with a guest that is not from around here. He's actually out in Silicon Valley. His name is Alex Lazaro. Thanks for joining, man. Thank you so much for having me. Although
2: I'm, I'm not from there. Um, I am uh, from the Midwest of Canada in, uh, in Winnipeg, Manitoba originally. So uh, uh, so really cool. really glad to be here with you.
0: Yeah. Well, let's dive into your background and talk about how you actually got to Silicon Valley. So you just mentioned where you're from. Talk about your education briefly and your professional background and just lead it into how you got into where you are today.
2: Yeah, happily. I am, you know, by day I'm a venture capitalist. I joke that I'm an accidental venture capitalist and accidental author um at the same time. When I was in undergrad, I thought I was gonna do a PhD in economics. And uh, with a big focus in developmental economics and the tool of finance to support innovation and impact, this was during the rise of microfinance and during the rise of questions like impact investing, et cetera. Um, I decided I would uh, get some practical experience, ended up on the Canadian version of Wall Street in Toronto doing uh, M&A Investment Banking. And I discovered a love for the tool of finance. I wasn't in love with selling big Canadian insurance companies. And so ended up doing my MBA, moving to the States. Um, at HBS, and coming out of that, thinking I really wanted to do investing in, in innovation something like what i 'm doing today, um, I realized I had no discernible skills um, either, and so um, ended up taking an offer to join a consulting firm, deferred it by about six months. A lot of the industries that I care a lot about are highly regulated, uh, like financial services or healthcare or otherwise, and I thought it'd be really interesting to understand how that side of the world worked, so I, I worked um, with the Bank of Canada, which is the, the central bank, um, in the same group that would have done Dodd-Frank here in America, that group for, for Canada, um, around uh, payments regulation. So spent some time there, and then uh, ended up moving to Europe um, with McKinsey for a few years out of Brussels, and then later out of DC, but working in a range of co- about 20 countries around the world, um, doing, doing a mix of strategy consulting projects um, across a bunch of different sectors. And uh, in 2013, I was given the opportunity to join a uh, new impact fund within the Omidyar Network, which is the family office and venture fund up Pierre and Pam Omidyar. And uh, um, joined that with a focus on financial inclusion. Was there for about five and a half years. Invested in a number of tech companies. Um, one of them was um, uh, a digital bank called Chime. And Cathay Innovation, the fund I'm at now, had led the Series B of Chime and had invited me to join uh, and, and help grow some of our West Coast work. And, and so I ended up there about two and a half years ago. Um, and so uh, the fund I'm at now, Cathay, is a globally focused fund, invests around the world, really built on this thesis that the best tech is not just Silicon Valley. It's, it's everywhere. Um, so so that's how I ended up uh, in venture and uh, ended up writing a book around the nature of tech outside the valley called Out Innovate: how global entrepreneurs from Delhi to Detroit are rewriting the rules of Silicon Valley with uh, Harvard Business Repress. So I'll pause there. Yeah,
1: yeah and that's kind of how we got to know each other, how we got introduced. Um, so I'd like to kind of dive into that book and how what inspired you to write that book in the first place.
2: Yeah, happily. Um, so by day, uh, I invest in startups with one foot in the valley, but one foot um, looking at entrepreneurs around the world. And outside of work, I've been teaching entrepreneurship with the Middlebury Institute for International Studies. And most of my students were like me. They um, are not from the valley. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in the Midwest, like I was mentioning um, or they were moving to uh, an emerging market or somewhere, and invariably, I felt like anything that I wanted to share with them about startup best practice was totally built for a different context. It was really centered in a time and a place, Silicon Valley, and today, and for a very particular type of asset-light software-based company that wants to grow extraordinarily fast. But the reality is that many ecosystems around the world just look different than the valley. They have less resources. There's less capital. There's less depth of trained startup human capital. And in many emerging markets, there's a lot more macroeconomic shocks that make it more challenging to build a startup. And I believe that the best entrepreneurs operating in many of these emerging ecosystems around the world are not only challenging Silicon Valley's conventional wisdom, I think increasingly they are reinventing startup best practices in meaningful ways. And so um, that's the reason I, read, I wrote the book is I wanted to tell the stories of these entrepreneurs and start that conversation.
0: Yeah, makes sense. Um, and we'll talk about just briefly, I've always been curious about the process of writing a book. Talk about just, I don't want to talk too much about this, but talk about what that was like for you. What, what it was like to write a book.
2: You know, I will say um, writing a book is one millionth as hard as starting a company or, or, or anything like that. But it was certainly the hardest thing I've ever done um and and i alluded to this earlier i'm I'm a little bit of an accidental author i I didn't plan to write a book when i started this um my uh my wife was writing for fun a fiction novel and to keep her company i had this idea and, and to scratch the itch i started writing an essay which i submitted to this contest called the brackenbauer which is hosted by mckinsey and the financial times and my book um uh, didn't win, but was one of the top three, and it, it was a book proposal, kind of an idea for a book. that The contest is, is 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 for new book ideas, and uh, I ended up getting approached by agents and writing an actual book proposal, and that turned into um, uh, running an auction for the book, and, and ultimately partnering with with Harvard Business Review Press. So that had been the journey to to the point at which I started writing a book, and I was like, oh man, now I have to actually write this thing, um, and uh, that was in June 2018. I mean, I wrote it um, and delivered it June 2019 and, uh, and we just launched it April 7th. So uh, that was a little bit of the timeline and how it happened. But uh, um, but really, you know, it was, a lot, it was actually a lot of, a lot of fun forcing, forcing me to reflect on what I actually believe and, and giving me the opportunity to learn from a lot of entrepreneurs around the world. Very cool. So
0: I do want to preface, you know, I'm really looking forward to this conversation because we are like right in middle America and we do see so much of what's different about silicon valley to in contrast to you know what we're seeing here um you know I've got the opportunity to work in california and be around so many of those high growth startups and I've been back and forth to san francisco with the previous startup I was with and there's a clear difference in the way that people approach a startup than how people do here so I'm looking forward to diving into this cuz we this is a topic that you know we do talk about pretty often um because really our our mission with middle tech is to highlight those differences and why it's different to start a business here and how venture capital is different. Um, So just to kind of start off the conversation at a high level, kind of give us the contrast between your perspective of uh, Silicon Valley and just, you know, here in middle America and and what you call the frontier.
2: Yeah. And and first of all, I, uh, one word of appreciation. I love that you guys are doing this because it's so important to start this conversation. Um, And, um, And one of the things in in the book, one of the gross oversimplifications I do, uh, or or, or that that I I think is easy to have is saying, look, there's Silicon Valley, not Silicon Valley. And the reality is, is there's 480 startup ecosystems around the world. There's over a million venture backed startups and startup ecosystems around the world are incredibly heterogeneous, as are the startups that are getting built around the world. And, um, And even in the Midwest, Many of these ecosystems look very different when you go city to city, right? So there's a lot of um, differences. Um, but what I do believe is that the best entrepreneurs operating in Austin or Chicago or Detroit or Amsterdam or Bangalore or Nairobi have more in common with the best entrepreneurs in Sao Paulo than they do with those in San Francisco. So there's a lot we can, we can learn in the contrast. Um, and so in terms of the differences, I think there's really three broad areas where there's some big differences. The first is around resources. Um, in many startup ecosystems, there's a lot less capital available. Um, there's a lot less depth of there's been there, done that, trained startup human capital that can take a company from seed to exit. I, I think the talent is distributed evenly, opportunity is not. And in many ecosystems, there just haven't been those opportunities before. Um, and so that changes how you think about um, the type of business you build and how how fast you can grow and how unprofitable the business can be if there's less capital, or how you think about your hiring strategy. Um, the second broad piece that I think is really important is uh, around the macroeconomic context. Obviously this is less relevant for middle tech and, and middle America, but if you are looking at emerging startup entrepreneurs in emerging markets where there's currency fluctuations or where there are more political shocks or things like that, um, Having to build innovation in that context is much more challenging, and thus resiliency matters a lot um, and so building it into that um, and then the third broad bucket, which I think is important to highlight is also culture of risk and culture of entrepreneurship um, in the valley, we have this incredible ecosystem where um, where risk is not only tolerated but welcomed and embraced and it's also okay to fail. If you fail, your company get acquired. If you fail, you'll get another job somewhere. I mean, if you fail, your investors uh, will understand. But in many parts of the world, failure is really failing. It's a black mark on your career. In some countries, you could go to jail for going bankrupt, right? Like it's really failing. Um, if your company goes bankrupt, like, everyone loses their job, and there's no acquire hire ecosystem either, and there's no glorification of a company that doesn't work out, and so, in many places, people don't even start because of that. Um, and so this this culture of entrepreneurship um, that is so strong, someone talked about Silicon Valley as not just being a place, but a mindset, that mindset of innovation is, is moving around the world, but it's definitely not spread evenly everywhere. And so those are some of the dimensions where I think, you know, as there are big differences, they tend to fall in these categories of resources, of capital, of people, and, and infrastructure of culture and of a kind of just general ecosystem stability.
0: Yeah. Makes sense. And, and one thing that I've always wondered, you mentioned there that, you know, let's start with some, let's start talking about the resources um, and how those differ. Um, You know, Silicon Valley, the way I view kind of the the financial resources, let's start there with venture capital um, is that it's kind of compounding. So Silicon Valley was where these high growth technology startups were born early, you know, they're, um, they, they grew and you've got the Apples of the world, the Microsoft of the world over there in the West Coast. Um, and then you had these exits and then there's all this money and you've got all these people that come from those exits and then they start investing in other startups. Uh, do you have any kind of timeline on how long it took for that compounding to start? When when did these early startups in Silicon Valley begin to get built? And then when did that compounding begin to be shown? Because ultimately what I view um, here in the mid middle America is that that compounding hasn't started yet because we haven't had that many exits yet. We haven't had that many companies to really grow and then propagate from there. Right. So talk about, can you give us some perspective on that?
2: It's, it's such an important question. And the reality is, is we often lose sight. We forget of how long that journey is, right? Like there have been uh, really big efforts over dozens and dozens and dozens of years at supporting entrepreneurship and innovation that is compound itself solely. Like there and 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 you alluded to it of these companies that then um, birth networks and support things. We we often talk of the PayPal mafia, but before that, right, there's companies like Fairchild Semiconductor and the Fairchildren, right? And all of the entrepreneurs that are connected to that. Um, Endeavor had done a systems map that we could probably include in the show notes that um, maps the Silicon Valley ecosystem and how many people were connected to Fairchild semiconductor, either directly as alumni, indirectly as being uh, invested in, or, or even mentored by someone. And you're right. It takes a couple rounds of this that it then drives into um, this self perpetuating cycle. But um, one of the things that I looked at is I said, well, what's happening outside the Valley and are we seeing those same cycles starting to unlock themselves as well? And if you map uh, acceleration of billion dollar businesses, of unicorns and different ecosystems, um, what you see is if you just get one in a place, it tends not to unlock an ecosystem. But when you get some amount of critical mass, then all of a sudden there's a lot more in the future. In China, you know, there's one and then a few years later, there's another. You got to two cumulative, A few years later, you got to three. A few years later, you got to four. Next year, you got to five. The year after, you got over 20. Right? Mm-hmm. It really exponentially increased. The same thing is happening in a lot of startup ecosystems where, you know, one can be uh, excused away as an aberration. We start getting this critical mass and it starts scaling and uh, exponentially from there. And there are now some of these runaway success stories that are emerging in many parts around the world. Um, In the book, I talk about older siblings as this concept of entrepreneurs that are scaling, that themselves become uh, wealthy, but more importantly, they become role models for everyone. They train a generation of folks who are the next generation entrepreneurs and how to scale and build a company. Um, Those people also might be angel investors as well and ecosystem builders. Um, And a couple of those really start creating this self-perpetuating cycle. And so we're early days. And for sure, I totally agree with you. We're not getting enough of those. But we're starting to get some, right? I think Mm -hmm. the HomeAway story um, in Austin, Texas, I think is a great example. And many of the entrepreneurs have come out of that. Um, in uh, in the ecosystem and and, and around I think we 're going to see more of those over time
1: yeah, I think I kind of want to pick this up and bring it localized. this will I doubt you 'll know any of these companies we mentioned, but we 've seen this happen in lexington and it 's actually the reason middle tech exists so a startup uh, in Lexington got started called Fuji. Evan was the first employee there, and it grew to a point of i think what sixty five yeah. employees at Fuji. And now it's spun off. Evan is working on his own own startup. It's spun off Middletech. It's spun off. So the company, the startup I work at, our CTO is from Fuji. And I'll kind of let Evan pick up how impactful that really was because I wasn't there. I didn't get to experience Fuji. But you can almost draw a web in Lexington, Kentucky from this one startup that got that funding and had that big Silicon Valley growth and the the impact that it had. And now that compounding effect, I feel like we're on the the cusp of that wave of really breaking into Lexington and seeing the full impact of all of these people that got that startup experience and became those role models and Evan being one of them for sure. And now it's you know I've seen it spill over into my own life. Now, you know, I'm involved in middle tech, I'm involved in another startup and it's it's starting to have this big, big effect here in Lexington.
0: Yeah it's awesome definitely story.
2: apparent.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's definitely apparent. Um and really I, I would
0: say it's it's more so it's set an example Um, You know, it has yet to exit, so it's not necessarily providing financial resources for the area. Um, It educated a lot of really young people like myself that jumped into this thing as a 21-year-old and got to see, you know, something like that scale and help grow that. Um, And so from an education perspective, it helped. But really, I think what it did was provide an example of what's possible here in Lexington. Um, Really, that hadn't been seen to my knowledge any time recently. Um, the, you know, just even the layout of the office. You know, everybody talks about the, the lifestyles and the cultures of of startups, and, and it's so true. Um, and the, the examples that that has set here and shown, you know, what work could look like that's different than very corporate uh, America that many uh, companies here in Kentucky are so used to. Um, just those kind of small things that it's an example for, um, but more importantly, just the, the pace of growth that we went through and the learnings and raising venture capital as quickly as we did. Um, we're kind of it's, it was a mindset. It kind of set a mindset um, standard, you know, for so many people there. And then they left and wanted to instill that mindset on either their own ventures or, in some cases, other ventures that somebody else started. But they wanted to help build. Um,
2: what do you think the founders did really well there to to unlock that in Lexington? That's so fascinating.
0: Yeah, I think uh, they're just they were they were pure purebred entrepreneurs. The Greg Greg Moore the founder there um, is somebody that really. Uh, look up to. And, um, he's just a hard nose, uh, founder who had previously failed on several startups. And this one clicked and this one worked. Um, uh, and I think him setting an example of just really taking big risk and stepping out there. And, um, and I think that the product was something that, uh, was an anomaly as well. Uh, as many startups, uh, Fuji did not start and, um, did not morph into what it is now on purpose Uh, it started as something different and then it uh, pivoted and that pivot really kind of began the rapid growth and we none of us had planned for that pivot right Um, and so the pivot happened to be this revolutionary technology um, that you know brought a brand new marketing channel uh, for brands to use um, which was connecting on-demand delivery services with social media and that didn't exist previously and so we saw rapid growth. I mean, rapid as in, in three years, we went from zero revenue to $10 million in revenue. Um, and for Lexington, that's, that's pretty crazy. I mean, for anywhere in the world, that's pretty, that's pretty crazy. Um, and, you know, the founders did a good job um, of really pushing that and getting the right people in place. And it was just a big team effort. But ultimately, I think they set an example of uh, just kind of the, the thoroughbred entrepreneur taking risks um, and just continuing to uh, be entrepreneurial, even if you fail. Because like I said, Fuji was not their first. It was probably their second, third, or fourth. Um, and this one happened to work. So that, that's kind of my perspective on that.
2: Totally. And, and I think that underscores this: the importance of acceptance of failure and building that into the culture. I interviewed um, uh, SJ Lee, who's the, uh, the founder of Toss, uh, which is one of the leading South Korean startups. And he's a dentist by trade. He started eight companies that all failed before starting Toss, which became one of uh, South Korea's first billion-dollar businesses, multi-billion-dollar leading fintech globally, and, and certainly one of the top in, in South Korea. And, but 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 definitely, like this culture of risk-taking is uh, developed over time, and it's tough. But I, but I think then it settle, starts perpetuating as you're describing that um, in the ecosystem at large. So that's a really interesting story. Thanks for sharing.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and, that, and that's ultimately what again middle tech exists because I got to experience that a couple other people got to experience that, but nobody talked about it like nobody here on here talked about it um and that and that kind of leads me to you know the next uh point related to resources that you'd mentioned is that you said that um I think it was that talent is well distributed, but opportunity is not um dive into that a little bit more and what that means uh from you know your perspective
2: yeah and and I think you know. This is one of these examples where, in many startup ecosystems around the world, the best entrepreneurs face tougher conditions and thus create new strategies that I think let them out innovate. And so, in many startup ecosystems, there isn't the same depth of human talent, human capital talent that has worked at startups before, that's been there, done that. Like, if I was founding a startup in Winnipeg, my hometown, there aren't 500 people that I could tap to be the CMO that have taken a company to exit. There's probably not 50. Um, there might be five, and they're probably working with my competitors. Um, and so as a result, a lot of the best startup founders in emerging ecosystems think about hiring the best talent wherever they are. They embrace things like distributed teams and have multi-offices. And with COVID, the whole world has moved towards remote, right? And and, yeah. and everyone is, is, is a remote team. But as we look to best practice on how to do distributed teams and remote teams well, it's no surprise that we look to companies like Basecamp which comes from Chicago or Zapier out of Missouri who didn't do this um, out of choice. They did it in, in, in part because of a necessity, in part because of strategy, in part because of practicality. And they all come from outside the Valley and all have something to teach us. And um, And I think that's what we're seeing on the human capital side is a willingness to think a little bit differently on how to build your teams. One dimension of course is where you build your teams. But I actually think we see some manifestations of that across the gamut, across um, how you recruit and from where um, in attitudes towards retention in uh, in Silicon Valley. It's okay to have an average tenure to be 13, 15 months like it is at Uber because there's a bottomless pit of people that you can bring yeah. into um, or maybe endless ocean. I don't want to use the bottomless pit uh, analogy for talent, but endless ocean of people that you can, that you can, can recruit to join a company um, that isn't the case everywhere. And so this idea of retention this idea of growth, Um, of folks over time matters a lot more. And so I've observed startup founders taking different philosophical approaches, but then tactics beyond that um, to try to implement it.
1: Yeah, and something else that I want to kind of hit on, we've been mentioning this ecosystem a lot. And this is something that we we hit a lot on here at Middle Tech. We, we're trying to grow this ecosystem, and we're sitting in a building of a company that exists to bring companies together and try to share learnings and and grow talent in this area. And the ecosystem here in Lexington, and I feel like in this part of the country, is very much collaborative and trying to bring, we always say, you know, the the rising tide makes all ships rise, whatever the saying is. Um, is that the same? Do you see the same thing happening in, in the Silicon Valley, or is it... Uh, more people kind of staying within their niches, staying within their companies, and more of a competitive mindset. What does that that ecosystem look like? Uh, where you, where you are?
2: Well, so what, what's interesting is um, you know obviously the Valley is an amazing culture of uh, helping, of uh, as Brad Feld would say, giving first, right? Like there's there's a really big um, culture, and there's kind of a called a, a like a hamster wheel, a self perpetuating wheel, where you know people start a company and they will get help from people. They'll build their company, and later on, they'll give back. What I've observed outside the Valley um, among leading founders is a willingness to give back at the same time as they are building, having to do it much earlier in their journey. Um, And around ecosystem building, some of the best initiatives being founder or certainly entrepreneurial community-led across every gamut of those resources that we were talking about. Um, Things like managing the culture and improving tolerance for risk. Uh, a story that I love is the story of uh, Fun, which is uh, stands for Fuck Up Nights. Um, it started in Mexico, um, and uh, the founders were getting really frustrated that there, you know, there a lot of news coming from the Valley of all the success stories, but there wasn't any conversation about failures, and there wasn't a tolerance for failure locally in the community, and so they wanted to start that conversation, and they, you know. The first was a Mezcal-infused evening and discussion, but it turned into more regular conversations and now is one of the biggest distributed entrepreneurial movements in the world, led by the entrepreneurial community um, in Mexico and and, and now all over to to help shape the culture. And so when, when thinking about ecosystem development, I think it's a lot of that. It's how do we harness the power of the ecosystem, the entrepreneurial community that's present, let them lead on what are things that can help. Brad Feld has written some really interesting work on this topic as well. Um, so perhaps a future guest that you can go, that, that, you, that you can recruit for the conversations. Um, uh, but I think that's one element and that's across a lot of the gamuts. And the second is um, to, the, to the conversation we were having before um, about some leading startups that really unlock an ecosystem. I think that ecosystem builders are often it's it's easier to say, hey, look, what are the metrics that are nice and shiny? And like one of the ones is like, how many startups are there that start every year, or like how many co-location spaces or whatever it is? And those are important, sure. But I think that what really unlocks an ecosystem is some of these companies that reach scale. It's unlocking these older siblings. And so um when I when I'm giving advice to ecosystem builders, I'll say don't forget these older siblings, don't forget. Supporting these middle-sized companies and helping them break out and helping them reach scale because that will help unlock the ecosystem in some ways that you can't even imagine, Um and, and no one can imagine. But, but we just know that those collisions of people and and, and that you know, Italian university will will um, reap some important benefits. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, taking risk, and, and I think you hit it on the head there with with like failures. Nobody talks about the failures, um, especially here in Kentucky and, and in Lexington. A very conservative uh, group of people, Uh, you know, taking risks and failing is is not something that people like to talk about. Um, Just from even in my own friend group um, and some of the people I'm around, they're they're very nervous about it. And I've got so many friends that are not nervous and there's a clear distinction in their enjoyment with work and, you know, things like that, that when you take risk, you get more out of life. And I just feel like right now here in Kentucky, it's just not celebrated enough for people to understand why they should do it. Um,
2: you guys should host a fuck-up night on the air.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I I, I, I was just that thinking idea. that. I think that'd be awesome to have, bring somebody in here who has tried starting a company and for whatever reason it failed and just say, okay, what, what happened? Tell us how yeah. you fucked up.
0: Well, I mean, even, even, even like they're micro failures. So like Fuji is still yes. a very successful business. Like it's still growing. But along that journey, there were a ton of major mistakes that we made. Like there were a ton of wrong... Uh, Decisions and really, I mean, like, there were just a lot of things that we we had done wrong and learned from. And, like, even those stories should come out and to show that you can still be successful and make a lot of failures. Like, it doesn't have to be just a straight up failure and the business is no no longer existing. Every business along their journey has failures. And I think it's important to highlight those. Um, And, Logan, I want you to highlight real quick because, you know, to Alex's point, it's also bringing together uh, the big players and the medium players, with those that are entrepreneurial in the in a smaller ecosystem, talk about venture labs um, real briefly with mm-hmm. with Awesome Inc. and what they're doing there because I think it's important to highlight.
1: Yeah, so Awesome Inc. Um, they are they are big on entrepreneurship in general in this area, and you know I don't know how nobody thought of this before. It's kind of one of those ideas that you look back on and you're like this. How did this not exist? Um, but they decided they needed to bridge the gap between entrepreneurship and startups and the corporate world so they launched this uh this platform this this program called venture labs where they essentially take a corporate setting bring their employees in and say hey we're going to do um like a startup weekend we're going to we're going to devote you know a full day to coming up with ideas iterating on those ideas and then pitching those ideas to the executives and seeing you know the lean startup methodology like go out and prove this idea out and then pitch it back to the executives and see what see what can come of it and just uh, having that mindset, especially in the corporate world where we have a lot more corporations in this area of the country and in Lexington specifically, um, so I feel like exposing more people to that mindset, you know that's a big deal to get people comfortable with like, "Hey, you can have this idea and it like it may not work perfectly the way you think, but you can iterate on that and you can pivot on that. And bringing that and introducing that into the corporate space is a huge thing that this area needs, and I think it's you know it's starting to flesh out. We've seen venture labs; they're now partnering with one of the biggest. Uh, well, I don't even want to name drop them, but because I don't know if it's, if that's uh, public oh, yeah. yet. But you know they're they're getting some really good traction and partnering with companies that see the value in this and that have lots of funding behind them. So I think that they're going to see a lot of success going forward because. There's a hunger for that sort of thing here in Lexington. I mean, in even
0: the even those large corporate companies, a risk might be per, like some of those employees might perceive sharing an idea as a risk. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And so even on that small of a scale, that's how far behind this area is on being able to take a risk because they can't even. Some people can't even feel comfortable enough to go to their job or their their boss and say, "Hey, I've got this idea on how we could do this differently," because they're nervous about that. Um, and so I love what you know Venture Labs is doing because that's so important. Uh, but give your commentary, Alex, if you can, on know how you see the corporate world working with you know startups and what your perspective is on that and how that could be done better around the world.
2: Yeah, for sure. Well, so first, maybe on the um, on the failure point, just to put a button on on, on that one, um, I actually you know startups are not companies; they're um, they're projects in search of a business model and experiments um, as yeah. you you know as as you iterate on on the product and iterate on the business model over time failure is part of that equation and it's necessary because it's part of the learning process. And so I actually think like, that's the mindset shift that's important and it's going to exist the whole way through because, you know, even after series B and you have unit economics, you're still like in search of a sustainable way to do go to market and a sustainable way to like re-architect whatever it is. Right. And so the whole way through it is natural to have failures because, as long as those failures are in service of learning and even if the company fails, um, the founder is going to go and do something else later on. And, um, as long as the things, it, it, you know, fool me once, uh, shame on me, fool me twice, shame on, shame on you. Right. Like, uh, wait, well, you no, know, I said that backwards, but, you know, <laughs> uh, but that's really the point, right. It's, it's, is driving the, driving the, um, uh, driving the lesson, learning from it, evolving your, uh, your approach. So I, I'd say that, that's one reframing I would think about. Um, look, I, I think that one of the things that will drive startup ecosystems around the world is um, different ecosystems will be strong at different things. Some ecosystems will have natural strength around whatever is cybersecurity because you know Israel, for instance, has the Israeli military and some of the work that they do and the porous boundaries between startup land and, and that. Um, Estonia, Will be very strong around questions like e government because of what the government's done there. Um, I think that that corporates have incredible amounts of knowledge and innovation, and there's an opportunity to foster and support and be a business partner to uh, companies becoming an anchor tenant to support them locally, to um, uh, allow sharing of information or sharing of uh, infrastructure or whatever it is. So I think there's that gamut of things that are interesting. Um, And obviously there's what corporates can do from the innovation standpoint and the capital standpoint. Um, There are big companies in a lot of these more emerging ecosystems. They could be sources of capital to fill the gap where venture doesn't exist. Um, Outside of Silicon Valley, particularly in Asia, um, the way many of the leading Chinese corporates play um, is really fascinating because, um, you know, in the U.S. there's kind of this, we'll either do venture or we'll acquire as kind of the two modes of operation. Um, in China, a lot of the leading corporates think of, hey, look, we'll, we'll invest, but we'll give you a lot of the benefits of acquisition. We'll weave you into our ecosystem. So Tencent, for instance, through WeChat, can really drive a lot of distribution for companies. Um, and so I actually think that mindset is fascinating. Of Like, how do you actually not only support with capital, but support with your ecosystem locally? Um, I think we're going to see more examples of that. Um, I mean, Stripe's the world. a great example, right? You're starting to see that with Stripe. Oh, for sure, right? And but Stripe is also a you know a, a tech company. I wouldn't call them a corporate yet. Uh, they're, they're 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 a startup. They're they're massive, uh, obviously. Yeah, but yeah. but yeah, for sure. I think I think they uh, are investing in companies and opening up their uh, their ecosystem at the same time. And I think that model we'll see more of over time for sure.
0: Yep, makes sense. Um, one one thing you put on here that I, I wanted to dive into because I, I haven't actually haven't, haven't heard this phrase. Um, frontier innovators raise camels. Uh, they don't strive to breed unicorns dive into that. I love, I, I love that.
2: Yeah. You know, um, everyone in startup land needs an animal, so I need an animal and it's the camel. <laughs> Um But, uh, but actually in all seriousness, um, uh, first, what is the unicorn? Um, the unicorn by definition, strict definition is a company that's worth more than a billion dollars, but in Silicon Valley, I think it represents more. It's also a philosophy on how you build startups. You know, the philosophy is this chasing unicorns. The method is growth. It's growth at all costs, where it's okay to have unsustainable unit economics in service of growth, where it's okay to burn lots of capital in service of growth, where it's okay to take a super short timeline in service of growth. I think outside the Valley, entrepreneurs don't have the luxury of doing that. And they have to build businesses that have sustainability and resilience into the business model from day one. That have sustainable economics that manage burn that take a long-term approach. You know why the camel? Right, the camel is an animal that can uh, sprint across the desert, can drink water faster than any other animal, can thrive when times are good, but can also survive in some of the toughest ecosystems. By the way, unlike the unicorn, it's a real animal. It exists all over the world. It isn't something that um, is made up or or only exists in one geo. Um, and so, I think it's a really powerful example, and that's the reason I, I chose it. Um, And and by the way, this is a really strong example of how businesses that are built in ecosystems of adversity can turn that adversity into an advantage and create long-term enduring success as a result. Um, And so that's probably one of the big meta themes of the book are what are some of these constraints that we have that we could turn into advantages as a result of building outside of the valley and allow us to out-innovate.
0: Yeah, I, I do love that. And I want to give some examples. Um, I'll give an example of, of a unicorn that's you know, growing at all costs. And I want, to, I want you to give some examples of, of camels that you've seen throughout your career um, and, and maybe what they look like.
2: I, I would urge us to say, let's refer to billion-dollar businesses and then unicorn philosophy, camel philosophy, because you could have a billion-dollar uh, billion camel uh, or a billion-dollar uh, unicorn, yeah. more of the philosophy on growth for this particular conversation.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, feel free to give more examples of unicorns. But when I think of that, um, you know, growth at all costs, I'm thinking of Uber, Airbnb, uh, those companies that are literally acquiring, uh, capital to acquire, uh, these unit economics and acquire users and own markets as fast as they can, uh, and dominate, you know, given spaces. And so growth at all costs, we want to own New York city. We need to raise a billion dollars. Let's do that real fast. Um, Airbnb, same thing. What are some others that, that are unicorns in your in your, so, in your mind?
2: Um, you know, a lot of the strategy you're advocating is, is around this question of blitzscaling that people have written about, like Reid Hoffman and Chris Yeh Have written a lot about. And in their book, they talk a lot about um, blitzscaling, which is appropriate for winner takes all markets when there's a lot of capital and your competitors are um, uh, are vying for that against you. Um, and I think the reality is is that strategy is very appropriate for narrow set of problems that truly fit those categories. I just believe that the vast, vast, vast majority of problems do not exhibit those dynamics and the vast, vast majority of startups don't have the luxury of being in that position to do it. And for most problems, the camel approach is not only the more practical one, it's the sensible one as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that the danger when you look at a story like Uber, you say, well, Uber got to be a massive company. Well, let's, let's peel back and say, well, what do they do? And you say, well, they did this method. Therefore, that's the method for success. I think that's dangerous. Because I think if you play the story of some of these growth at all cost companies a hundred times in different economic scenarios and in different moments with not everything going right, I think that what you see is, um, I I believe that we're seeing one version that happens to be successful one, but I think we're going to get better risk-adjusted outcomes and success over time With the camel philosophy let me give you two examples um, of companies just to make it real Um, i often find i often think of on-demand delivery as one of these highly venture subsized models right like doordash raised 1.5 billion Mm -hmm. Um, i interviewed uh, mike evans who's the co-founder of grubhub started in chicago and he talked a lot about how every single fundraise they were break even and every single fundraise when they raised venture capital was for a very specific purpose it was to um, do a small acquisition or expand to a couple other cities. Um, and so their Valley of Death didn't look like a traditional Valley of Death, big giant hole. It looked more like ditches of death, right? They did a sprint and they got back. They, did, you know, that, that's how, that's how it worked. Um, uh, I asked Mike, I said, why didn't you raise a little bit more money and exit faster? It took him 10 years to IPO. And he said, I could have done it in two years less, but I would have done so at tremendously more risk, right? Like that's really what I'm talking mm-hmm. about is how do we get those risk adjusted outcomes? Another story I like is the story of Qualtrics. Um, so I interviewed uh, Ryan, the CEO, um, and he talked a lot about the fact that um, essentially building sustainability and resilience in the business model was key to their success. Um, it took them about 12 years to so their big breakthrough. At the beginning, they were an education survey software, right? And they did their switch to enterprise in year 12, 13. And that really unlocked the big growth in the business and they later raised that uh, two billion dollars from some top vcs like excel sold to sap for eight billion and uh, are now rumored to be going uh, going public um but it's really this this notion of building with sustainability and resilience in mind um, that i think gets you through into success more often in more scenarios
0: makes a ton of sense and, and funny antidote on grubhub and connected back to fuji we were talking about earlier uh, in the early days of fuji Uh, We had so many hits. So we basically used um, Grubhub's API. uh, And to my knowledge, uh, they actually didn't know we were using their API. We kind of hacked, kind of a hacked together API connection with them. Uh, And the way that Fuji worked is we would create these viral campaigns on Twitter. And at this time, Grubhub was a a public company. I think they're a relatively new public company. Um, And for, I think it was a little over an hour, we totally shut down Grubhub. We had so many API hits going to Grubhub. And it was wild. It was a wild situation that a small company here in Lexington, Kentucky, for a brief period of time, shut down a public company's website.
2: They must have really um, been excited about you guys.
0: It was it was crazy. They were so pissed. Um, and I'm not sure Fuji would be happy to be <laughs> saying that on the podcast, <laughs> but it happened. It's it's in the past. So, um, but that's just the fun. Far- this segment might get edited
2: out. Let's see. Um. <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: but another thing I wanted to do is, as we get towards the, the end of this this podcast. I want, I want you to kind of give some predictions on some areas of the world you're seeing begin to see some of this, this compound growth and some areas that you're really excited about like Detroit or South Korea that you you brought up earlier. What are some areas of the world you're seeing uh, the beginnings of uh, really great ecosystems and what's your predictions for some of these, these areas?
2: By the way, I don't think it's the beginnings. I actually think that one of the things that's most exciting about this is that we're already seeing, incredible progress around the world let me give you one statistic in 2013 four ecosystems had created all billion dollar businesses in 2020 this year 84 startup ecosystems have created a billion dollar business 84. think about that right the movement of innovation has become global and it isn't just big companies that are getting built internationally it is the biggest companies that are getting built all over the world so think of robotic process automation right? This new trend that's shaping the world. It's the biggest company. UiPath came from Romania. EdTech, the biggest company in the world came from India. Super apps, which are being replicated all over the world. The biggest company came from China. Um, Credit led uh, digital banking. The biggest company in the world is in Brazil. It's new bank, right? Some of the biggest and leading innovators in many segments are coming from outside the Valley and these, uh, um, uh, historically dominant ecosystems and talking about this tide that rises all boats. I don't think Silicon Valley is going to go anywhere. I think Silicon Valley is and continues to be a great ecosystem, a great place to start companies. But I think that what's going to change is that you don't need to go to Silicon It used to be that you have to go to Silicon Valley, to start your company. Like that, that was the place. I don't think that's true anymore. I think people can build a great company and will build a great company wherever they are and wherever they want to be. Um, and I think we're going to see more and more of that. I think one analogy, That um, is is perhaps a prediction of how this will manifest itself. A hundred years ago, the technology of the day wasn't software. um, And the capital of innovation wasn't Silicon Valley. The technology of the day was automobiles and the capital was Detroit. And the top three companies in the world were in Detroit. And hundreds of entrepreneurs moved there to build car companies uh, or suppliers or whatever it was around innovation. Fast forward, what happened, right? Innovations become global. And today you might say, the capital for raw engineering is in Germany and the sexy sports cars come from Italy and the most reliable cars come from Japan. Um, and the capital of electrification is Silicon Valley or arguably Shenzhen. Innovation went global and so did best practice. Think of just-in-time manufacturing that the Japanese pioneered has now influenced manufacturing all of them. I think the same thing is gonna happen in innovation, right? Silicon Valley will continue to be there, will continue to be an important driver of innovation for years to come, but we're going to see innovation continue to grow in these ecosystems around the world. And so will expertise around particular areas of it, um, be it cybersecurity or uh, financial services or education or whatever it is based in part by the strength of the local ecosystem and the uh, ecosystem that's created by companies that are successful there or what have you. Um, And so will best practice on how to build startups in this um, proliferating, and growing ecosystem around the world. So that would be my prediction of how this evolves over time um, and why I think it's not only just really important that founders and entrepreneurs operating outside the Valley learn from each other, but why the Valley takes a moment and learns from the rest of the world as well. I love that. I
0: love that perspective. And I think, you know, if if there's anything we're aiming towards here uh, in Kentucky to be kind of the innovator of, I'd say it's ag tech. You know, For we're, sure. we're aiming to be the ag tech capital of the world. Absolutely, Alex, I challenge you after this podcast, look up uh, App Harvest. Uh, App Harvest just announced a, a SPAC. Um, just like so many other companies uh, out there right now taking advantage of that that vehicle. But look up App Harvest, and what they're trying to do here is really create an ecosystem that, that thrives on innovation around the ag tech space. And so they're doing controlled environment agriculture um, on massive scale, uh, and they're trying to bring up the whole area around here with them. Um, so uh, definitely look into them.
2: I'm I'm counting on you to source me some, uh, great series A through C companies in ag tech. Uh, (laughs) um, and, uh, and and we'll take it from there, but no, that's, that's really, that's, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. So as we, as
1: we wrap things up here, uh, first want to give you a chance to kind of plug your book here and, and tell us, you know, where to find more information about that. And then as we end, we always like to end on a forward looking statement, uh, so if you could just give us, you know, a, a little segment about where you see middle America going,
2: uh, we'll, we'll end it there. For sure. Um, so my book out innovate how global entrepreneurs from Delhi to Detroit are rewriting the rules of Silicon Valley um, just came out in April and you can find it um, anywhere where books are sold, of course, um Amazon, but uh, given where we are in the crisis, et cetera, I'd really uh, urge you to support your local bookstore and buy it there. Um You can also register for my newsletter or follow my writing at alexlazaro.com. That's A-L-E-X-L-A-Z-A-R-O-W.com or on Twitter at Alex underscore Lazaro. Um, And a forward-looking statement. I end the book with the future is at the frontier. Um, And I think that's really true. I think the future of tech will be everywhere and it will be in middle America. And I think it's going to, its expertise and its leaders are going to come in different sectors and different segments in different places around the world and excited to see Lexington, Kentucky continue to thrive. So thank you so much for having me on the show.